The following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to the Double X Gap Fest for Thursday, January 25th, the Babe.net versus Aziz Ansari edition. I'm Hannah Rosen, a host of NPR's Invisibilia. And in the New York studios, we have June Thomas, managing producer of Slate Podcasts. Hi, June. Hey, Hannah. And Noreen Malone of New York Magazine. Hi, Noreen. Hi, Hannah. Hi. Um, so before we get started, I just want to say we are not ending. The show is not ending. <laughs> <laughs> the apocalypse has not come to the Double X Gap Fest. It was this very confusing thing where we were saying goodbye to the Double X Slate section um, and had this whole discussion. But a couple of you loyal listeners wrote to say, no, don't end. I must so say, even though... It was kind of a failure of communication on our part to not make it clear that we weren't ending. I still enjoyed getting the emails and the tweets because it did make me feel wanted. So that was good. Mm -hmm. By like three people. Well, hush, hush. (laughs) At least three people. (laughs) Exactly. Those three people represent all those other people out there. Those are our favorite listeners. Every every email and tweet represents 10,000 when it's something that you (laughs) want. (laughs) When it's something that you don't want, they're the only ones who think that. It's a lonely troll, exactly. Exactly. Anyway, we're not ending. We're still here. But that was confusing. Okay, so our show today, an obvious one, the hashtag MeToo Aziz Ansari case is the case that seems to have finally cracked open the debate in a whole new way. I can't wait to discuss it with you guys. So our second topic, New Zealand Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern, who is now pregnant and announced she's going to take a six-week maternity leave. Uh, we're going to spend half of the time trying to say her name correctly. <laughs> I hope that was a, that was a, that was my first stab at it, and June can correct me. Uh, and the other half of the time discussing what it means to have a pregnant PM and how people reacted. And finally, every couple has one fight that they keep having over and over and over again that defines their marriage and that comes to stand for everything else. Uh, This is a new column by Slate, a really brilliant idea. I don't know whose idea it was, but it was great. David and I wrote the first one about our first epic marriage fight. So we are going to discuss, does every marriage have an epic fight? And what are the categories of those fights? Then in our Slate Plus segment, June, what are we talking about? In our Slate Plus segment, we are going to ask if these new women-only parking spaces that are being unveiled in China are sexist. Is women-only parking sexist? And if you want to hear that segment and enjoy the other perks of Slate Plus membership, you can sign up. It's $35 for the first year. Go to slate.com slash XX plus. All right. Aziz Ansari. Recently, Babe magazine published an account by writer Katie Way of a date that a woman that the magazine called Grace, which is not her real name, had with comedian Aziz Ansari. The account in Babe was very explicit. The date was very bad by Grace's account and ended up with Grace crying in the Uber back home. So for many reasons, this particular account has cracked open the hashtag MeToo debate with a lot of people, most eloquently Caitlin Flanagan of The Atlantic, complaining that this is not sexual harassment. It's a kind of revenge porn, the way people are writing about this. So before we get into the debate, let's characterize for people who didn't read it the nature of the debate. We uh, the nature of the date. Sorry, we don't have to get deeply <laughs> into the details. But um, um, I, Noreen, you you take it since you haven't talked yet. Tell just like a little bit of of sort of what happened and what was the what was the what was the what was the problem from Grace's perspective. So they met at uh, I believe an Emmy's after party. Grace was there as a photographer. They flirted. He asked her out. 
um, and they went. They met at his apartment. They went to a uh, bar and a boat nearby, and he sort of rushed through the drinks there and said, "Let's get off this boat." Side note: that boat is uh, near my office, and I agree with his take. Like, get off that boat; it's way too crowded. Um, <laughs> but anyway, so they get off the boat and they go back to his apartment. Um, and he very quickly sort of initiates hooking up and sort of, as she puts it, like speeds through the various stages of hooking up um, and rushes to get a condom. And she at various times tries to slow him down. Um, seems like both verbally and nonverbally. Um, and he's sort of persistent. Uh, they, you know, then they put their clothes back on. They go to the couch and watch Seinfeld but he keeps pushing and then she finally leaves uh, I, th- I, I mean yeah. I definitely the, the, um, the account gives a lot of intermediary steps like you sort of one of the reasons I think this became such a thing is that you sort of by the end of it felt like you had had yeah. a sexual encounter with Aziz Ansari like if you want the nitty gritty details they are definitely there on Babe.net it's true that people responded to this the way they responded to that New Yorker story cat person yeah. that we discussed it was almost like a, a fictional account of a date in which you could feel every move and awkwardness and kind of sexual horror in in a kind of small, intimate way. So I think that's one reason why it took off. It was extremely explicit. Not written by Grace herself, remember. This was written by a reporter. This was done as a reported story. Um, So, June, did you think it was fair to tell all those details before we talk about, you know, whether it rises to the level of harassment or why she wrote it or what we think about it. What did you think about all of the details that she revealed? Which involved like really embarrassing, like sexual move. I mean, really, really memorable, embarrassing sexual moves. Yeah, it's, this is a very tricky, this is a very tricky part of it because no, I I disliked it. Uh, And I don't know whether that was as a journalist and where I just, or if it was, as a, I mean, I just couldn't tell on what basis I was having this very strong feeling, you know, an emotional reaction that, like, this wasn't fair. Wait, you disliked the article or do you disliked Aziz Ansari's actions? I mean, both. both but, yeah. but I did not. I felt that the article was unfair. Um, I felt like this was I, I was not comfortable with the description of the date. I was not comfortable with, uh, you know, the actions that are described. But, you know, Caitlin Flanagan's piece, which I didn't much care for, I kind of agree with her that it is 3,000 words of revenge porn. That might be a slight mischaracterization or exaggeration, but, um, you know, just the laying bare of uh, what one person who we know and recognize did and then, you know, with without when we, we really don't have a way of of knowing anything about the person who's who's writing this and who's, who's recounting this story. And there was a, you know, weirdly, and I know how strange this is, the thing that kind of freaked me out about it was that at one point, you know, there, there's a lot of detail about, you know, what they talked about, what they did and said and all of that. And one of the things she, she mentions that he told her about a super secret um, project. And you think, wow, you're, you're revealing all these personal things about him, but you somehow, you know, maintain this secret project, you maintain the secret of the secret project. And that, somehow felt maybe that's a good thing maybe it's a bad thing but that somehow was was a real awkwardness for me it just felt um i don't know i i just don't know if i if it was right to bear so much about 
so much private stuff about an individual when there wasn't a suggestion like this isn't a, a you know testimony in court it it's a it's a bad situation it's it's i think it is coerced sex um but it's not it's not illegal and it just struck me as as unfair and i but i also feel bad about that because i know that's a, that's a that's a kind of tricky position to take what how what did you feel hannah was the piece fair do you think the piece was fair no, I, I feel exactly two ways about it. I don't feel it was fair, and I'm glad that it was published. Mm. I don't feel it was fair because, I mean, I don't know why this is news. You know, if I would feel very differently if Grace had written it herself, mm-hmm. and I would feel wildly differently if Grace had written herself under her own byline. Exactly. That's her own personal experience. It's a little bit like the woman who wrote about what was happening at um, Uber. I mean, that's different because it's a workplace thing and it it does rise to the level of news. But I would feel differently if Grace was writing this as a subjective and personal account of her own emotional experience that she it's like her own personal truth. Right. That's that's fine. And actually, that would be very useful to know. Um, I'm a little more ambivalent about whether I think it's good to be published because there's such an obvious core failure of communication. You know, he says I had a really great time last night and she had a really miserable time. And there was some way in which each of their realities, you know, didn't translate. And I'm sure all three of us have been on bad dates. It's not that I'm surprised that this happened, but I do. I think, it. you know, I I think it's it's kind of useful for people to know that you can be, you know, Aziz Ansari is not an idiot. He wrote a whole book about dating called Modern Romance. So Mm -hmm. he's actually thought about these things in an intelligent way. And even in that situation, he can just totally fail to read the cues that she claims she was making clear. Now, I don't know the truth. I wasn't in that room. I don't know how clear she was making it that she wasn't into it. It felt to me reading it that she wanted to be into it. Like she was trying to get on the same page as him. She wanted to have a kind of adventure with him and he just like wouldn't give her the the space or time to let her get there. Um, so I so I can see how it happens. But 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 I do think it's kind of useful in detail for men particularly to read this and maybe even women and think like, well, why didn't why were the signals crossed? Like, what is it that happens in these situations? Like, if this ends up, I guess it depends on the result. Like, if it ends up with like more of these kind of just humiliating encounters, humiliating essays that people write about dates anonymously, like behind the protection of anonymity, that's not so great. If it ends up in in a kind of better intimate communication in some profound way that we can't even see yet, then I think it's okay. Yeah, to me, this was an account of, like you said, a total failure to communicate or Mm -hmm. just um, maybe just a basic disagreement about what they wanted out of the evening, right? Like, it seemed to me like she wanted romance. And and what a lot of the critics of the article have said, like, just basically, why didn't she leave? You know, he wasn't, he wasn't holding her down. She, she didn't work for him. That's the other um, thing that people are saying that this doesn't, you know, fit into the Me Too movement because of is that this wasn't a workplace situation. They met at a party. This was a classic date. You know, he wasn't, he wasn't um, coercing her in that sense. Um, but to me, it was just like it was the tragedy of modern dating in in like one act because she, you know, if you asked her, she wouldn't say like, I want Prince Charming, probably I want the flowers, I want the whole deal. But on some level, she did want to be romance. She wanted more than one drink at the stupid boat. She wanted to, you know, 
She didn't want to be rushed. She wanted she wanted to have a choice of white wine or red wine. Right. And um, I think that is what's so impossible for people to understand that she couldn't just like assess the situation and say, okay, this is a, you know, a, a 35-year-old celebrity who seems to just want to have sex with me, a 23, a 22-year-old. And um, that might be naivete. That that might be a whole host of other things. But that, that and, and it, so it made me sad for her, but it also made me sad for him that he yeah. like, you know, just didn't want a human connection. And, and like, this was like, he had a, you know, a, a set way that he moved through these encounters. Um, and so to, so I, I don't think that this account for me rises to the level of assault, um, even even though he did keep pressing after she said no. And I realize that sentence sounds bad. But given all the context, it was actually helpful to have all the context that this article did give, even though it was only one person's half of the account. Um, I, I think character you could characterize it as, um, you know, sort of coercion, as, as June did. But I think assault, which is something I saw people use, um, is uh, the wrong word. Um, and and that's another reason why people are uneasy with it being part of this uh, larger Me Too debate. The argument in favor of talking about this, which I think this is to your point, Hannah, like that you're glad it exists, is that it's broadening the discussion beyond just like the really bad, you know, um, Harvey Weinstein to Matt Lauer spectrum that, that now we're actually talking about... Um, the ways in which sort of more ordinary heterosexual sex can be bad. Um, and I there's, I think I've mentioned this last week, but there is this great Rebecca Tracer piece where she talks about, um, you know, consensual sex can still be bad and we need to be having that conversation. And that's sort of what I want people to be talking about more in this yeah. moment, not debating actually like the babe.net journalistic ethics. Yeah, it, it does feel like this piece, um, I mean, because let's say because it's about Aziz Ansari, has gotten a lot of traction, has started a lot of debates. Like a lot of people have said, you know, my dad started a conversation with me about this piece. Young women, uh, you know, have, have said, my dad... Wait, read- wait, wait. Your dad? Not my, well, my, no, dad's, no. my dad's dead, but young women... <laughs> young, women young women have said, like, my dad saw this piece uh-huh. and he wrote to me and he said, listen, don't do this, don't do that. Or like it started a conversation and they've said, no, dad, uh, this is, you know, just... Just because you don't walk out doesn't mean that you are okay with what's going on. That there's another kind of thing that people do. That it's almost like you play along, to speak, you know, to keep to keep things safe. Um, that's just a, one example of one conversation that I, you know, heard people having. Like this, this particular scenario seems to have set off a lot of conversations that are actually useful conversations because they are like. Having people, you know, this like provides a very specific set of circumstances for people to have like kind of theoretical conversations about like in this circumstances, this may seem to you to represent that. But actually, you know what I mean? Like it's it's a it's almost we all are projecting so much onto this particular scenario that it it has allowed a lot of conversations to blossom, I think. Well, what's interesting to me about the, you know, the go long to get keep safe in this particular account, there wasn't really, she didn't really hint at any physical, any no. sense of physical threat throughout, no. which is, I think, maybe another reason why people were, were sort of um, puzzled by it. And um, that is something that people talk about a lot. But it, but this really seemed to be about emotional uh, damage. Yeah. 
Yeah, a lot of these, I mean, in the way that it's framed and the way Caitlin Flanagan framed it, she often raises the specter of the kind of old-fashioned world that she grew up in, which women were, you know, taught how to be safe and taught how to keep themselves away from men. And that's a kind of way of talking which almost mimics the talking of the hashtag MeToo movement. It is about sort of safety and danger and harassment. It's there, There's very much like the war between men and women, whereas it seems like this might be completely naive, but that what could come out of this is just like you, he, you know, the guy understands that there's no circumstance in which like a regular intelligent woman who's not being paid for her time wants to be in this kind of fantasy that he has. You know, it's just not what she ever wants. So he's going to have to change his 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 game. You know, he's just going to have to change his playbook or something. It's like women just most of them don't want to don't want to play like that. Yeah, um, this this all actually made me really sad for Aziz Ansari. Like you said, Anna, he wrote a whole book on modern romance, and this is what he's got. Like, I, I think he yeah. wrote a whole book. <laughs> wrote a whole book because I mean, we didn't even talk about the claw, but um, we, you know, he, I almost <laughs> said the words the claw yeah. because it's just like really you can't get it out of your head, and that's <laughs> exactly. the problem with that article. I saw modern romance in my attic, and immediately I thought the claw. You know. <laughs> It's like, he's not going to sell any more copies because, like, give me a break. And that book is actually good. Like, it's really yeah. funny about the, like, lame moves that guys make and the lame texts that they send. We talked about that book we on did. the show we eons did. ago. We it's did. a, it it's a really out. funny, good book. Right. You know? But but so he did this whole investigation into it, maybe because he was, like, so puzzled by what to do. And he's, you know, he's a smart, adept guy and and um, can't figure it out and, you know, swimming in, in this sea of weird messages that everyone is getting and, and like, maybe this is what happened. So I know, I know, like, world's tiniest violin, Aziz Ansari, but, but that, you know, as a stand-in for other guys, I, I was sad for him there. So what is up with the email that Katie Way, the author, wrote about Ashley Banfield on CNN, where she called her like old has been with terrible highlights and no one under 40. I, I know it's a petty thing, but it is to me is kind of disturbing. Like as a what kind of feminism is this? Like what 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 category of feminism is this then? It's it's that was I did. I couldn't totally get my mind around what Caitlin Flanagan was saying about the atmosphere of babe.net, you know, yeah. that it's a lot about like rape fantasies and kind of bitchiness and, 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 and then it's also like, what it, it, it made me realize I have to just kind of redefine where the lines are and what the world looks like. Yeah. Do you I have mean, any thoughts about that? The, um, the email itself was just like a hilarious document of a 22 year old riding high on, on a moment. Not too shabby. <laughs> not too shabby, right? She said, you know, I'm doing... Did you write that when you were 22? I'm not too shabby. I would never have written no, that. I was, like, afraid of my shadow at 22, okay? <laughs> but, but I mean, so we, we sort of, like, got at this a little bit early, the generational stuff in our last podcast. Um, but to, to your to your point about Caitlin Flanagan's argument, you know, she she walks you through the world that Babe.net has created in its other articles, and it's very, like, female chauvinist pigs era feminism, mm -hmm. like, super, super raunchy. Um, there's a great article on Slate by Ruth Graham actually walking you through uh, Babe.net, which is just like a puzzling site that no one, no staffer is over 25 as like a point of pride. Um, I think that it's worth reading Caitlin Flanagan's piece um, in tandem with a piece by Ginia Belafonte in The New York Times. Um, so Caitlin sort of takes her piece. She walks you through the world of uh, Babe.net and then she says that one current she sees 
in this whole movement is anger, right? Especially in the in the sort of younger women, there's just anger. And that is closely associated with like, you know, an email like what the girl wrote, but also in the in all the articles on Babe.net where they're telling you like the 10 best, best ways to give a blowjob, whatever. It's like, you know, downscale Cosmo. Um, and then in this Ginia Belafonte piece, she points out essentially that the only time people really pay attention to feminism is when it's about sex and domestic roles, right? Mm. And that at the end of of the day, that this big conversation that we're having about feminism that is great and that we're, you know, I I am so happy we're having it, but it is true that like there is this prurient interest in these victim scenarios in what exactly happened with Aziz Ansari and that maybe there is some on some level that's what the women are angry about is that like at the, you just still no matter what even in even in victimhood even in um, this radical movement forward it's all about sex it's all about you as a sexual object and I thought that was just a smart way into this. Mm. That's really interesting because mm-hmm. I was just puzzled. Like, why is such total invulnerability, like not too shabby at 22 and total vulnerability at the same mm. time? But the anger thing, they just they were, it seemed so extreme, like those two in the same space. I think, you um, know, as, as someone who has at various times in my life lived in a bubble, it, I, it had all the signs to me of somebody who lives in a bubble and, you know, doesn't realize that. You know, when you speak in the argo of your bubble, outside the bubble, it seems crazy to the rest of the world. <laughs> and, you know, I think a lot of us were like, yeah, Katie, love. But I, I, I agree. But it's also the <laughs> radicalness of the moment. Right. Yeah. Like, so sometimes radicalness looks like a, you know, a Tucker Max with an MFA. Like, like she's a good writer, as Caitlin Flanagan pointed out. But mm-hmm. it's, you know, people on Twitter are saying like crazy burn it all down things. And so yeah. is she in this email that people people are sort of like getting caught up. Um, if you're not with us, you're against us kind of thing. And and even if it's an older feminist with, you know, <laughs> what did she say about her highlights? It was so it were not so good. Petty. Yeah. Yeah. She guess she called her a second waiver as if that was the worst thing you could <laughs> not even accurate, but whatever. I didn't actually watch um, the original segment, so I don't know what she said, but I don't know that it was necessarily like um the best thing that yeah. that Ashley Banfeld said. So just to make you guys predict a little bit, does this is these I'm sorry case turn things? Does it open the discussion? Does it, you know, just kind of tamp down the flames a little bit i'm looking for metaphors but you know what i mean (laughs) like like is it a moment or is it is it just gonna continue on as it was i feel like it is a moment but i'm also seeing and like i i just want to be clear just to you know because we did get some feedback to our last episode where we were talking about this generational moment it's not exclusively generational i mean Mm -hmm. i'm old and i feel like i'm you know on the young people's side of this particular discussion um but it's, you know, so I think it, it's a time of, it's a revelation. Like, I think this story, which, I guess I said, I think only got attention because it was about a famous person. Uh, and if it had not, if it had been anonymized, it would have been probably just as interesting, but nobody would have read it. But I think that it has started a lot of conversations, uh, some of which we've, you know, mentioned earlier in this segment. Um, and it's also generated a lot of backlash from, I think, people who then have not, it hasn't really, their backlash hasn't caught on. I mean, Caitlin Flanagan, Barry Weiss, uh, Andrew Sullivan, you know, there have been all of these, you know, pushbacks. Um, 
And yet, I think that hasn't stopped. You know, so that's confirmed some people's existing view, but it hasn't stopped this conversation. I feel like I'm repeating myself, but I, it feels both like it's allowed some people to go, I told you these people were going crazy. They're talking now about trivial things. And like, it's not trivial. It's not on the same scale as Harvey Weinstein, but that doesn't mean it's trivial. Right. It's just uh, uh, different. And it, but it is good that we are, I just think it's very, very good that we're talking about these things. Well, what I think is interesting about a lot of the criticism, particularly Caitlin's and Barry Weiss's in the in the Times, um, is that it's framed as like, you know, I'm part of this movement too. And what I'm worried about is like allowing the backlash in. Yeah. Um, and, you know, what I thought was sort of the worst part of Caitlin's first essay was when she sort of invoked Aziz Ansari's race in this weird way mm-hmm. to say like, oh, are we, you know, are white women really going to go after a brown man like this? That was just like a weird feint at um, shaming, shaming woke people. But but I think so. So people are framing this as like, I'm on the inside. I don't want the backlash to come. And I'm I've been doing this, too. I've been sitting here worrying about the backlash for three months now. And I think actually we're we should just stop that. Like, yeah. Uh, in some ways, by fretting about the backlash, we're inviting it in. And this is a different moment than the last big, you know, than than the 90s. The world is completely different, actually. Yeah. I think the Internet is a complete game changer. And we don't know how that's going to play out. Sure, maybe backlash will come. But actually, we are furthering it along by, like, maybe rooting ourselves too much in the historical cycle here. I have never taken that word backlash seriously. Like, I've never <laughs> thought there was a backlash or would be a backlash. There isn't a backlash. It, to me, it's just like a further refining of what exactly we're talking about and a completely legit pushing back against some elements of, like, you can't question, you can't ask any questions. Like, there's it's just incontrovertibly like people go down. There's a new awareness of everything, of sort of how people behave, of workplaces, how they should be, what goes down in Hollywood, what goes down in all sorts of powerful places. There's no like backlash against that. Um, there's just, you know, and then there's also just like a reasonable discussion of some elements of the way this movement gets gets you know keeps rolling which i think is it was super useful it's not like a one push forward one push back it's just to me it's just like more discussion of all things that need to be talked about but you don't believe in like the concept of backlash at all like you think that whole susan Floody book was hooey like that the culture changed oh no okay. oh oh okay. that okay no no no, no it's the, not that in I don't the current that. moment okay okay in the current moment no i love the susan Floody book actually but in the current moment it's helped me understand things a lot in my life i just think in the current moment mm-hmm. in, yeah, in yeah, this totally. debate okay. of harassment um we're not going to lose to i i don't know i i hear you a lot of people are worried like we're going to lose this whole movement to a backlash um and we i see what you're saying i, yeah, I guess it's i've never as... taken that seriously because it seems so real like we've had so many real you know yes. uncontested just horrifying examples of things happening that we didn't know were happening yeah and um, it's not a we didn't. fragile movement at this point mm-hmm. it's yeah. it's like i think it's robust right and and like um expanding beyond like the media hothouse uh industries right so i think it's going to start hopefully slowly at law firms maybe not at banks but but places like that it's going to start slowly rolling out yeah all right. Well, listeners, we if you've had interesting conversations of the kind June mentioned, personal conversations resulting from the Aziz Ansari 
article, particularly with your dad. No, with anyone. <laughs> I, I actually am curious about the ways in which is, this has affected people's sense of intimate relationships or dates or things like that. Anything personal that's come out of that, I would, we would love to hear it. Um, so please write us, doublexgabfest at slate.com. Okay, so Jacinda Adern, Adun, help me out, June. Well, I don't know, because I, I think we both had the same experience of looking for some tape where she says a name and instead finding lots of stories about people calling New Zealand to try and find a good pronunciation and her answering the phone. And at the end, they would all offer, instead of giving tape, they would offer a little sort of pronunciation guide, but just in word, you know, in letters. So, you know what I mean? Is it rude I did feel like the internet was playing a joke on me. Exactly. Like I've never Googled that many videos and not had someone just say her damn name. Exactly. You know? But but according to the the um, prescriptions, I, I have gathered it's Arden. Can I call her Arden. Jacinda or is that rude? <laughs> I, well, I know from the coverage of the New Zealand election that that was how she was always referred to. Yeah, like I say Hillary, not Clinton. You know? I mean, that's slightly condescending, maybe. Like, we don't do that for men. Like, whenever yeah, I, I would... say Bill. Yeah, George but, W. You know, it's no. funny. Whenever I would hear <laughs> British journalists when during the Obama era, they would always be talking about Barack. I'm like, his name's Obama. You know, like... <laughs> although they all pronounce his name weirdly, too. But, um, so yeah, it feels slightly condescending, but also much easier. I will say the Prime okay. Minister. Yeah. The, the prime minister. It's true that in in a lot of the videos you call up of you know of her supporters, they do chant just and uh, like it's a <laughs> chant that people in New Zealand say. But you said her last name much better than I did, Aden. Aden. Anyway, she's thirty seven. She's the youngest female leader ever, and she announced the other day that she and her partner were going to have a baby and that she was going to take a six week maternity leave. This was awesome. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's pretty great. <laughs> I did. There are just yeah. so many details about New Zealand that are fantastic. Like her partner, they're not married, but her partner is uh, is the host of a TV show about fishing. I mean, that's just amazing in and of itself. Uh, oh, that's like Sarah Palin, fishing, ice fishing. Not a TV, not a TV show host, but like just that there is a TV show about fishing. And that oh, I'm sure we have that in America, don't we? We got we, everything here. We do. We do have whole channels about it, but yeah. I suspect that the profile is slightly higher in New Zealand. <laughs> I have negative things to say too, but let's go through yeah, all the awesome yeah, yeah. things. Yeah. 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 Well, um, her her guy is going to be a house husband. That's been a big part of the sale to the people. It's like, don't worry about it. I'm not going to sit. I'm not going to deal too much with the baby like my fly fishing husband is. Well, I don't know if she said it quite that way, but yeah. <laughs> that's my American spin on this. <laughs> uh, my Real Talk Express. I mean, New Zealand, for a you know very progressive country, has does not always have very progressive policies. Um, abortion is very uh, hard to access in New Zealand, comparatively, uh, you know, not compared to say Texas, but still compared to a lot of uh, equally progressive countries. Um, and you know, she did have it was a very long negotiation for her to become prime minister. Her party did not win a majority. In fact, it was the second highest vote getter in the election. And so there was a lot of kind of coalition, uh, you know, building, you know, the, the kind of thing that people who've seen uh, Borgen will be familiar with. Uh, and so I think that's one of the reasons that there has, as you hinted, uh, Hannah, been a little bit of a backlash because after this long negotiation in which, uh, you know, this other party, the New Zealand First Party, so I finally said, okay, we're going to make an, a, we're going to make an alliance with Labour and Jacinda's going to be prime minister. 
And now we hear, well, actually, she's not going to be the prime minister for at least six weeks and she might be a bit distracted. You know, that's the reason that there has been some negative talk. I personally am not particularly convinced by it. But um, but yeah, and, and I know that, again, from my one source of information, Slate Slack, some, uh, you know, mothers, especially mothers who had their children in their 30s are sort of saying, yeah, uh, I don't think six weeks would be enough for me. Uh, and I don't think I could get on with the affairs of state uh, six weeks after giving birth. But um, well, that's not reasonable. Um, I mean, just because she's the head, of, she's talked about how she's the head of state, and so her responsibilities are different. So I feel like if people are going to start judging her for exactly how many days she takes off or doesn't take off, they should stop that. Um, I would. Here's what confused me: it, I do not think of New Zealand as progressive in gender relations or Australia. There is a kind of retrograde way in which I feel like they're a little behind in accepting such things, or that we just that Americans just don't say what they actually think. Like this is what confuses me about gender signifiers and countries like that. There were some clips of how as soon as it was, as it was announced that she would be the prime minister before she was pregnant, mm-hmm. um, there like these two these male talk show hosts asking her about the dilemma and how women her age want to have children and what about the whole family work thing. And, you know, then this whole discussion about how if you're an employer, you need to know if if the people you hire are going to take maternity leave and can you even do this job? I mean, we wouldn't have that discussion. So it was odd to me that a country which seemed more regressive in gender relations would be nonetheless beat us to well, the Well, I mean, that's, I don't know about thing. that. I mean, she would, for example, she is the third female prime minister uh, in New Zealand. We have had zero uh, either uh, presidents or, for that matter, you know, leaders of parties. Well, okay, yeah, I guess I'll take it back about leaders of parties, Nancy Pelosi, etc. But in terms of like that same profile, we're, we're not that far ahead. I mean, she have eight, you know, there's 22 weeks maternity leave paid maternity leave that can be split with a partner in New Zealand. I mean, it's not, I don't think that picture of regressive policies is altogether fair. Um, you know, New Zealand was the first place that extended the franchise to women. Uh, it's, it, I know what you mean about those, you know, Sheila's and uh, and Bruce's attitudes, but I don't. It's, Who's Sheila and Bruce? Well, is that so Sheila, like your she, Joe. Yeah, exactly. Sheila. That's actually Australian, but you know, like hello, Sheila. Hello, Bruce. Um, <laughs> you know uh, that they that there are that there are sort of there's a there's a reputation for there being rather uh, formal and old fashioned sexual roles, but at the same time, third female prime minister. So yeah, that line of questioning from the interviewers was so specific that it made me wonder if like one of her friends had leaked the detail that she was trying because I mean, she was pregnant, right? As like yeah. this was happening. So she she probably couldn't tell people it's way too early. But it, it just did seem so targeted that like one of her friends had too much to drink and said, oh, you know, no, she's gonna have a baby soon. Like, it well, was wild. <laughs> but what do we think of that? Like, what about the imagery of I mean, it is it, she's not the first person to be pregnant as the head of state. But um, but well, maybe um, only the what, second, though. I mean, Benazir Bhutto did yeah, it in 1990. Bennett. But it's not like there's a million of them. 
Tony Tony Blair so had what, a kid it, while in office, and David Cameron. Yeah, not personally. But it does but. feel like the the like the optics they do something to you. Like what we like they do something to the world to see like a heavily pregnant prime minister who's then taking maternity leave. Like it does bring the whole issue into sh- focus about women's leadership and what women can do. I mean, to me, it seems fine. Like you just you yeah. know you you you're the prime minister, so it's not like the best time to have a baby. But um, but you know you just you just have to deal. You know, you yeah. just deal. Yeah, it kind of annoys know. me that women in Slate Slack are saying that it's, I mean, I'm sure it is hard. I haven't had a kid, but I th- I feel like the mothers of the world should should link arms like Hannah and, and just pretend it's going to be totally doable or or say it's going to be totally doable. No, it's going to be suck. Well, to be clear, they power on. That's exactly it. To be clear, they thought it was awesome, but they also said, I would not do that. But also, of course, they were not, they would not run for prime minister. You know, they're right. not politicians. Right. Um. There, you know, and I hate to say this, you know, no tea, no shade, New Zealand, but also it's not exactly, you know, a world superpower. It's a small country in the Pacific that, you know, is has many important resources, but it's it's not like she's, you know, president of the U.S., you know, because you could never have a slightly distracted Prime president, for example, that would never work. But why not? But no, then, course, that's what I'm saying. Have... We have one. We have one. We have an no, idiot. No, but I mean, then you like, oh, I see. I missed the joke. But then, but what? What if you wanted? I mean, the thing I got to say, another thing about watching these is like, I was so envious that such a person exists in their mm-hmm. politics. Like mm-hmm. she's so warm and so calm, and people ask her sometimes like shitty questions, and she just like doesn't get flustered, and she just answers them. And you know, there's something about about her that's like so wonderful for a person in public life like there's there's she does not have a kind of like like stiff managed practice right. kind of feel about her yeah um i really i wish for one of those i hope we get one of those well you remember I'm, I'm afraid i'm currently forgetting the name of the australian prime minister the woman who um you know in the similar situation when she was you know in parliament and was essentially just receiving sexist you know, barracking just responded and called out the guy. And it was amazing. And you do have this level of envy that these, you know, Australia is not a small country, but it's and it has amazing resources, et cetera, et cetera. I'm really not dissing, you know, Australasia, but not massive world powers. And so, like, just you get this feeling that there's a something there's more of a freedom to be just a bit more candid and a bit more honest about your feelings rather than have to, you know, lard them behind 17 layers of, of like, real politique. Okay, but also, is there like, there, it must be so much easier to be an executive who's pregnant or a new mother, right, than to be a worker bee. I think about this all the time yeah. when the, like, Marissa Mayers of the world are, get celebrated for that. I mean, this is very, that to me is, like, the closest analogy in recent history. Someone, mm-hmm. you know, leading leading Yahoo is maybe a little bit like leading a small down-under country. Yeah. Um, you know, you have you have a lot of people helping you out. You have to make decisions. You have to act with clarity. You have to work long hours. But... I just think it would be easier than than even like an office worker drone job to do it um, while pregnant. It's interesting that, you know, so the the deputy prime minister will take over as acting prime minister for, uh, uh, you know, while she's on maternity leave. And some New Zealander, you know, some New Zealand press coverage mentioned that New Zealand First, his party, is, you know, is not is a little bit of a, uh, I don't know, it, it's 
they're anti-immigration. They are, you know, the leader is Mari. It's like in that sense, you feel, wow. So the woman is is taking maternity leave and a Mari's taking over. But his party has some uncool, let's just say, or unprogressive uh, policies. But people have pointed out that like the role of the acting prime minister is is circumscribed. He's not going to be able to, you know, nuke uh, China while he's, you know, in power. Random example. Um <laughs> And so it's just been interesting to like, it's great. Now we're going to have a Maori prime minister, but he's not, we're not going to let him like run wild. You know, I love that you got so deeply into uh, New Zealand, like politics. I love preparing I, for this segment. I'm obsessed with New Zealand. I watch so much New Zealand TV. Their vowels are bonkers. <laughs> <laughs> my, my other takeaway from this, has this been a TV show yet? Can we pitch this as a TV show? Like it's a great premise, you know? Right. I mean, in Borgen, she she it, there was the the coalition, but she and she had the kids, but she was not pregnant. I gotta watch Borgen. So good. It has to be that terrible things happen to me. It's not so much the pregnancy; it's the six week maternity leave that mm. she's asking to take off. Which you know, I super applaud that. I think that's amazing. Um, but it is that it's like the intrigue would have to happen while she's away and yeah. distracted for six weeks. People, there the palace intrigue would have to just heat up while yeah. she's not paying attention, and people would have to take advantage of it. Totally. That would be the plot. One last thing about her. She's a Mormon. That was interesting oh, to me that. because Mormons are very traditional about their family roles. And maybe that message kind of got lost when it translated to New Zealand. <laughs> There's uh, no women in leadership in, in the Mormon hierarchy at all. I mean, yeah. it's just a complete patriarchy. If you look at the Mormon leaders, it's also completely white, but they are really like old school that way. So it's interesting that she, you know, she <laughs> was raised Mormon and yet settled into this leadership thing it's cool you know what else was interesting we just called her she the whole time <laughs> we, that's how we solved the name thing <laughs> all right we have any listeners in new zealand you can tell us everything that we are not understanding about this yeah. situation and how sexist or unsexist your country is we would appreciate it it would school us okay our one fight. Does every couple have one central fight that originates somewhere early in the relationship and then replays itself over and over and over? I wrote about mine and David's. It's kind of about order and chaos, respect and disdain, and it begins in this one huge fight we had early in our marriage. And since then, I would say lots of people have written to me about the order, chaos, divide. So first I'll ask you guys, do you, would you believe in the premise? Does every couple have one fight? Like they once had a fight about a couch or they once had a fight about a baby or they once had a fight about, you know, something. And then all fights originate from that one awesome fight. Before we give, begin, I have to just take a moment to praise this piece. It was an amazing, amazing story. I guess I had not read your written work for a while and I, nor had I read David's writing for a while. And I had kind of forgotten what amazing writers you are. It was just such a good piece. Uh, so I It's so wanna... funny because it came from the id. Like you, you said that and I appreciate it, but it was really like one of those like you when you it, it made me realize the power of the premise just sitting down and writing it because as soon as I put my mind to the f the big fight, it's just like the details. <laughs> they're so very present. I mean, this <laughs> is a fight that happened so long ago. Like you said, 17 years so... ago. Yes, yes. It was 17 years ago. I, like Jacinda, was pregnant <laughs> and working. I was the prime minister of Australia at the time. And New it Zealand, was just, please. 
<laughs> I know, but I didn't want to take her mantle completely. Uh. <laughs> so anyway, it's it's it made me realize that like lo- it is true. Like there is one fight that if you just call it up, and I've since had people write me and say, "Oh yeah, for us it was the fight about the couch we had at this place," and like then it became a fight about money, and then it became a fight about where we were going to live, and then it became a fight about you know who's ruining whose life by choosing one thing. It's like the one fight that opens up all the other fights. Also, what I liked about the piece was that I got a sense of how you fight. Yes. Because, Hannah, you escalated. I would argue that you won it, <laughs> but you definitely went for the jugular in a way that he was not prepared to do. <laughs> he, he let you... He, I don't know if he let you in, but you definitely won it. And it, it it made me suspect that that's the way your fights go, is that, like, you... you uh, up at a notch and he maybe tries to be the peach peacemaker that's probably not true all the time but uh. it is actually not true david was being gallant publicly because <laughs> i'm a bitch and so <laughs> and i don't believe in public gallantry and so but in fact we're both equally flexible is why we've been married for so long so no i'm not really an escalator i was just having fun and i was hoping that he would have fun back and he just conceded and i'm not really sure why it was really like nice and noble and gentlemanly of him not to chew me out because i know that he believes that I mean the the chaos order fight is like one person's the list maker in the marriage right one person's the list maker and the other person is like the juvenile teenager which is me so one person's always feeling like why are you putting me in a box was the other person has to kind of take on all the responsibility of everything and so it's kind of not fair and he didn't come back with that like I've since had all the list makers in the world write me (laughs) and be like do you know how lonely and terrible it is to be the one who has to keep the order and like write the list and always be in the police role it sucks you know you juvenile makers of chaos like shut up already so i do think that he really could have like i had to make his point for him but he really could have gotten me for like how how much you know how much i get away with but you press Um, back which i suspect you know you said i'm not that disordered and i suspect a lot of people and their couples just get stereotyped into the role like in the great scheme of the world you're actually not a chaos agent. You're someone who gets a lot done. And um, as someone who works with you, I know this. You're like organized. But like in any relationship in the world, people fall into roles and then reinforce those roles. And I guess they get further reinforced in fights like this. Yeah. Yeah. There are interesting sexual ones I've heard about, too. (laughs) Really? There's like a thing that one person wants that the other person just won't give or doesn't want to give. And then it becomes about so many other things. Like it becomes about desire and just kind of who's relinquishing and who, you know, and just kind of what kind of life you're going to have and and, and the meaning of that. I mean, that is that is one that I've heard about a lot, too, which is interesting. I love hearing about the couple. It's a very profound kind of um, premise. Yeah, uh, what are, for a prism for understanding relationships and kind of yourself. It's very useful. Do you and Rosemary fight? I can't picture no. it. It's, it's the weirdest thing. So we've been together for nearly 21 years. I don't think we've ever had a fight. And I know how ridiculous that is. And I know that that's actually probably not healthy. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think like I, I do not enjoy arguing. I feel very uncomfortable when I see people arguing or when like people who are staying at your house argue. Oh, that's the worst. But um, or are constantly bickering. So it's not like, but I also know that never fighting is just odd. But I think that, and I, I hope that it's not, and I also think that like a certain amount of like expressing yourself, maybe not arguing, but like it's unhealthy not to express, If you, sh- you shouldn't like sublimate your feelings or not express your feelings if you're, but like we just don't, we just get on. And I, 
But at the same time, there are definitely things that I find myself, like all of my bad things that I do, like she's a nice person and I'm not. And uh, <laughs> That's not true. And like my things are all the same. They're all from like my inadequacies or my the things I feel bad about or just like just just my my personal stuff that like actually we did once have an argument because <laughs> she went to Japan and she brought back a, a nail clipper. It was a special nail clipper <laughs> and she didn't want me to use it. And I got so mad because I because like I, you know, I grew up in a filthy, dirty home without a bathroom. And I'm always like I'm very self-conscious. Like I think people think that I'm dirty because I was dirty. I was a dirty child. And like and she she also grew up poor and like did not have, you know, whatever. And so like it's a very personal like it's all about my my baggage. Yeah. It's nothing to do with her. Well, everyone's fights are about their own baggage. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so, like, I can recognize that and it all comes out. But, uh, yeah, that we, she and I do not fight. That's really nice. Yeah, it's nice. It's really nice. I have had relationships where all we did is fight and that's just fucking miserable. Yeah. So what I'm trying to now enumerate, some of them are about driving. I've heard one about driving, mm. like one oh, person yeah. hysterical while the <laughs> other person is driving um, and that that happens consistently and that that's about, you know. Um, that's about control, too. Yeah, that's also about control. Do they all come back to control? No, some of them are about gifts. Gifts, I've heard some about gifts. Gifts, gifts? Hold, hold the whole... Gifts, gifts. So, but, like what, the bad gift giving. Like oh. somebody gives terrible gifts and that's a sign that the person doesn't know you. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It's this constant sense of not being seen or not mm -hmm. being heard or not being known in any profound way because the person just buys you such profoundly inappropriate and terrible gifts. So that's one that's come up a lot. And their that's categories. another one about their own stuff, right? Like they feel invisible in other parts of the world. And so like even in my own home relationship, yeah. I'm still invisible. Yeah. Right. I can relate right. to that. I have a question. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Hannah, so over the years of your marriage, has have you figured out quicker ways to resolve the one fight? Is it like, is it rote at this point? Do you know that you're falling into this pattern or is it fresh every time? Um, no, because I'm a really good person. And so, <laughs> uh, so I, for example, have tried to become more respectful of the need for chaos and see it instead of seeing it as you just mean the need for order, <laughs> the need for order. Sorry. Like just see it as a imagine. kind of like, I see the anxiety that stems from it. Like, I mean, a perfect example, which I hinted at, is like the keys, right? I mean, this is probably couples will relate to this. Like, I have my the car keys wherever. I don't drive the car that much. Like, let's say once a week. So it's like wherever it is in my pocket or wherever. You New York people will not relate. But some of us drive cars sometimes. And so <laughs> I, and so then, so then, so then, you know, David will, needs the keys to be where the keys should be. And that used to make me, I was like really 12 years old when that fight came up. I was like, it's my motherfucking keys. I can dangle them over the toilet bowl. I can, th this is literally how I would talk. So it's embarrassing, you know, like, what do you care where the keys are? When you need them, I will give them to you. They don't need to be. So I'm a jerk, right? But now I realize that's super mean because it's just like, there's a kind of wavering noise in your brain about the keys for him and if they're not in their place that wavering noise doesn't quiet and it's like just put the keys where they're supposed to be and like 
give the guy like just let it like let him have soothing peace it's a source of anxiety so why would you lay your sword down on this you know just like put it down i'm kind um, of so i've Davis. started time so you have to try and it's like an empathy thing you have to just understand it as like it's real like it's real the anxiety over just things being in their place but why don't you like to put the keys on the hook it's so easy i'm just wondering <laughs> <laughs> You're just doing yourself a favor down the line, not to be all Team David, but I get it. <laughs> I just don't want to be called out on it. Uh, yeah, that, that's fair. That's fair. Do you think that arguments are healthy? Like it is. I, I understand how ridiculous it is that I am anxious about not having arguments. Like, do, do I mean, do you think like, is there some sense of release that you get from arguments or would you prefer to avoid them? constantly if you could there are kinds of arguments that are useful and there are kinds of arguments that are toxic and terrible mm. the ones that where you just keep having the same argument over and over and over again um and i know many people like this like not useful but the arguments where you actually are you know you're tr you try and move somewhere or mm -hmm. you're trying no, they don't have to be like i don't it's not like est where we have to express <laughs> ourselves respectfully and take our clothes off so we don't leave the house or whatever i don't mean that you can express yourself however you want to some people are yellers some people are or, you know, write, write passive-aggressive text. It just has to move somewhere <laughs> for it to be useful. <laughs> Don't express yourself um, through passive-aggressive no, text. No. That's yeah, not good. but I love that June is now, like, maybe your one fight is that you don't have a fight and now that's <laughs> going to torture you about how I you I need don't a, have a fight. fight. I really don't. I really don't. All right, so... So listeners, I have loved getting emails from my friends about their one fight and how it unfolded and what it means. So if you have any you'd like to share, we'd love to hear more of them. Uh, maybe we'll send them to Slate and then you can write about it. Um, these have been delightful. Uh, and by the way, Slate is allowing people to write about them anonymously. So, so that should help some people. Not everybody likes to fight in public like I do. <laughs> so bring them along. All right. Recommendations. June, what do you have for us this week? Uh, so before I get to my recommendation, I just want to mention the wonderful monthly podcast Hit Parade in which Chris Malamfi displays a knowledge and just like this wealth of information. He knows so much about music and specifically number one hits and kind of the pop charts. And he talks about them in such a fascinating way. Hit Parade is a show in which he just kind of shows off his knowledge in this Along with, you know, wonderful clips from the music, you know, just like the story of how Red Red Wine got to be a hit, the very long and winding story, but absolutely fascinating story or, uh, you know, songs that never got past number two, but that are, you know, and why. Uh, it, it's just an amazing show. Uh, later this week, uh, there'll be uh, the new episode, which is actually uh, a recording of a wonderful live show that was held in Brooklyn uh, last week. And uh, it's about the trivia about famous B-sides. And it is fantastic. And my recommendation, I know I've been doing this a lot recently, but the BBC iPlayer radio app is so amazing. I spend so much time listening to fantastic uh, mostly radio plays or book at bedtime, which are kind of books read aloud. Uh, and in the last couple of weeks, there was an amazing one. I guess it's the 100th anniversary of Muriel Sparks' uh, birth. Uh, and I hadn't read Muriel Spark for years. I mean, of course, I love The Prime of Miss Jean Brodie. And I remember reading The Abbess of Crewe, uh, which is her Watergate book. Um, but the book at bedtime recently did... Uh, a beautiful version of her book, A Far Cry from Kensington. 
Um, and it was read just amazingly by this woman, Maggie Service, who I do not know from Eve, just did a fantastic reading. It's a book about looking back on the early 50s, which were much more scandalous. Sex was not invented in 1963. <laughs> uh, and it's about, you know, this woman um, worked in publishing and it's funny. It's beautifully observed and it's fantastically read. So A Far Cry from Kensington on the BBC iPlayer. Sounds great. All right. Um, so I'm going to recommend an article this week. Um, by the way, I have been reading The Power. One of you recommended it last week. That is an odd and interesting book. It is. It is. Anyway, I'm going to recommend a story that ran in New York Magazine, in your own magazine, oh. Noreen Malo, by Brianna Joy Gray about identity politics. Racism may have gotten us into this mess, but identity politics can't get us out. It is a very interesting article. It's it's kind of a it's a debate with Ta-Nehisi Coates and kind of strategic what the Democrats should do. But it framed sort of identity politics in a strategic way and, and kind of in a way I haven't read before. And it's really gotten me thinking about it, like separating identity politics as a moral cultural strategy and as a kind of political strategy in, in a way that's just totally helped me to clarify my thinking about, about just how to, how to think about all this going forward. Maybe we'll even discuss it. One week. But anyway, I loved it. All right, Noreen, what do you have? Well, I'm also doing a little log rolling um, for Slate. There is a new feature as part of their redesign in the new human interest section um, called My Parents Work Life Balance, in which Laura Bennett, an editor at Slate, is interviewing uh, children and teenagers and, you know, 20 something children of sort of so far like well known parents and asking them, okay, like, how do your parents actually work? Like, how does that affect you? What do you think of it? And it's fascinating. It's so good. She had um, Ben Smith, the editor of BuzzFeed, who's sort of famously addicted to his phone. His his kid talked about, um, and his his wife is a journalist as well. His kid talked about like what it's like to have, you know, parents like that. And then um, the latest one is sort of even more delicious. Um, this. A uh, young woman, Lulu Chua Rubenfeld, whose uh, claim to fame is that she is the daughter of the famous Tiger Mom, talked about how her parents work. And it's kind of exactly what you would think. <laughs> um, but so far, the kids have all been in in a way like no matter what they say, the kids have been so impressive and funny and insightful and sweet that it uh, reflects well on the parents. But um, I'm, I'm looking forward to reading the rest of the series as it continues. That is such a good idea. Yeah. And I agree. It's it's there's so much in how much love. I mean, obviously, kids love their parents, but the, it's just the way that they talk about how their parents behave at home, what they think they do at work. Especially, yeah. you know, Ben Smith's kids who's younger. It's there's something. It it's a really impressive way of expressing how well they've been parented. Yeah, it's and it's it's very sweet, but also you get to like activate your judgment synapse just a little <laughs> bit and be like, come yeah. on, you should really not be on your phone in front of your kid that much. Yeah. Um, I'm a little lost here because now I'm thinking about what's going to happen when inevitably one of my children dies. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, Shit. Oh, yeah. Your daughter would do a great job. Oh, you are doomed. <laughs> I really am doomed. Oh, damn it. Oh, well. Okay. Have at it. I, I air dirty laundry in public all the time. So it's their turn now. It's an invitation for Noah. <laughs> yeah. 
All right. Well, that's our show for today. Thanks to our producer, Daniel Schrader, uh, the executive producer of Slate Podcast, Steve Lichtai, who we don't thank enough. Uh, for more information about the show, go to our show page, slate.com slash XX. And this week, why don't you go to our Facebook page? A lot of you have gone on our Facebook page recently, uh, sent us ideas, which has been very helpful, ideas of things that we should discuss. Facebook.com slash double X We love to hear from you. That's our show for Junior Noreen. I'm Hannah Rosen.